0: Hello and welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast. Tis I, Des Bishop, talking to you now from my new apartment. Well, when I say new, I just got it, but it's not a brand new apartment, but it's a nice apartment in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, Grand Street, and uh, Clinton, because I'm not too worried about people trying to find me, uh, down by the Williamsburg Bridge, and... Uh, My shit is everywhere. I'm slowly moving in, and uh, I'm in a good mood. I have to say. So I said, "Let me take out the let me take out the recording device for this episode," because I always say this podcast. It's really an episode of my podcast. But I said, "Let me take out the mic now and uh, get it get it done." You know, because I've 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 known what I've wanted to talk about all all the week, and um, you know, I didn't organize an interview. Uh, so I wanted to, something happened during the week that made me think, oh yeah, I should talk about that. But before we get into the, the serious subject matter of the day, um, I'm in a good mood cause I was just down at the comedy cellar doing a, doing a spot and, uh, the booker from the tonight show was there. I mean, I've met him once before, but I, he watched me tonight. And then I got a text saying, "Oh yeah, he really wants you to submit a tape of clean material, of course, because I wasn't, I wasn't performing for him per se, so I didn't like do my Tonight Show esque material." But anyway, needless to say, I got the, uh, I got the uh, ASAP. You need to get a tape together, text, which is good. I mean, it doesn't mean anything, but. You know, I had I had actually met him, uh, like, I don't know, like a month and a half ago, maybe. It was before Christmas, and uh, maybe two months ago. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, you should submit a tape. But he hadn't seen me. He just remembered me from Aspen back in 2005. He wasn't uh, booking for The Tonight Show then. Anyway, he... Uh, and th- then I was like, right, I really got to get, like, this clean five together. And I have to be honest. I mean, uh, people that maybe know the comedy game, know that a sort of five-minute late-night spot is like not the ultimate, uh, it's not the ultimate thing to perform. I mean, it it has its benefits to have performed it, but it's not like something you look forward to. It's certainly not my natural, it's not my, you know, it's not my uh, my time to shine, the old five-minute TV spots. Like, in fact, I feel like Internationally, my career would be a lot bigger if I was able to nail five minute spots because though I know I'm a good comedian, I for a long time, not in recent times, but for a long time I just I just did not have the flow or the cadence or the the writing style to really just like go in and just slam those five minute spots. And there's certain times in your career where th- that's important to do. Like the first time I was in Melbourne, I didn't nail my gala spot. Um funnily enough that time in Aspen 2005 I did not nail my opening night 5 minute spot. You know it was just a couple of times like I just like had like a like a chance and I didn't just like nail it. Uh so anyway uh he, I, was, I think he saw me tonight, and I, I, I did well, now I have to say, and uh, so now I gotta get the skates. Oh yeah, so I met him like two months ago, and I was, I was, I was starting to work on like the the lighthearted stuff, you know, stuff about my nephews, stuff about the phone, uh, all actually just snippets of stuff that are going on to the show that'll be on uh, RT Player, and uh, I just, oh, I fucking hate it. I hate it. I can't stand, you know, like. Taking little bits from you know you know, I just like to let a I like to let a piece breathe, you know. I like one subject in five minutes, but with these spots you gotta do like four or five subjects. So take a little bit about being older, a little bit about the nephews, a little bit about the phone, a little bit about speaking Chinese. So basically tomorrow night now I'm doing a new joke night where well, I'm not gonna do new jokes, I'm gonna try to piece together this five minute set and then for my actual seller spot tomorrow night. I'm going to, uh, like, start the show with the five minutes that I think, well, that I'm going to submit to this guy at The Tonight Show, but that's all good, because sometimes I need a kick in the ass, you know, I can get a little complacent, not that I'm not working hard over here, which I am, but, you know, I can get complacent on the things that I'm not as wild about doing, I mean, obviously, people that listen to this podcast know that I'm a procrastinator, but, like, I'll work hard... Like, you know, like, the only time my room is clean is when I have, like, a deadline for some writing. Uh, you know, like, I'll do something else rather than the thing that I'm fucking, you know, don't uh, don't want to do. Uh, or, or that I want to do, but I just can't get down to it. So, like, I'll gig like a lunatic. I'll travel all over the world. I'll fucking hustle. But then when it comes to, like, working out new bits or putting together a five-minute spot, I just keep putting it on the long finger, but I can't anymore but luckily somebody's like poking me so that's going to help. Anyway, that's a little bit of uh that's a little bit of my comedy business that's going down. Um and so the thing I wanted to talk about um well, it I I wanted to talk about grief and grieving because you know, I I don't know was I good at it, you know. Um, when on February fourth, my my it was my dad's anniversary, which I don't actually I don't re- I, I hadn't been registering the date, you know. Uh, and the last two years, don't ask me why, people have messaged me on like Facebook, said thinking about your dad today, his anniversary. And obviously, it was very public when my father died because, you know, we had done the show. My dad was nearly James Bond. And, you know, for those that don't know about that, uh, well, first, let, let, let me not backtrack. So um, I'll backtrack in a minute. Anyway, somebody messaged me the other day, like, and if this if that person happens to be listening, don't feel bad. But, like, it kind of annoyed me in the sense that I was like, well, I don't like to register this day. You know, I like to consider it, Every day you think about your father being gone. You know I don't, I don't know. Am I wild about like this is his anniversary? This is the day he died. And, you know this was his birthday. Like I like November fifth is his birthday. I always think about his birthday because that's like, you know, it's it's in my brain. We celebrated my dad's birthday. Not to mention that it's the day that Marty McFly goes back to 1955. He leaves. Uh, November 5th, 1985, and he arrives November 5th, 1955, and he returns on November 12th, which is my birthday, because my father and I's birthday were a week apart, so, I mean, maybe one day I'll do a podcast about Back to the Future, but obviously, you know, my generation is a big movie, you know, and uh, so, yeah, so when I got this message, I was like, ah, fuck, now I gotta, like, now I gotta know that it's my dad's anniversary, you know? And uh I was I, I just was I, I don't know. You know, I just feel like it's like one thing after another. The, you know, like life is full of memories and you know, you grieve when it's natural. I just don't know if I believe in the sort of anniversary of somebody's death celebration, you know? Or not celebration, but just day to notice it. But anyway, what it did make me think was then my mother that evening was like, oh, you know, today was dad's anniversary. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I try not to really think about it. I try to think of him every day. And uh, and then I was like questioning myself. I was going, yeah, but really, you know, let's be honest. You know, let's be honest with yourself here, Des. Have you actually, you know, did you actually grieve? You know, because, I mean, everybody's journey is personal, you know, and so I, I, I know that there's no right or wrong way to grieve, but, you know, our situation was unique, you know, so this is where I think it's a good time to backtrack. So, you know, we I found out in 2009 that my dad had like lung cancer, terminal lung cancer, small cell lung cancer, and I think a lot of people may have seen the documentary made about it, but originally, uh, you know, I was there, and, you know, I was helping out, and it just so happened, coincidentally enough, talk about Melbourne, uh, I was due to go to Melbourne in 2010, and I was writing a new show, or I had to write a new show, and, you know, so I started writing down material about, The shit that was going on, like basically caretaking for my father, funny stories from the hospital, Um, you know, things I thought a lot of people would identify with, you know, the stresses of somebody in your family being ill. Um, And, you know, this, uh, this initial theme started to rise up of becoming the parent of your parents, you know, I think that was like one of the early things that I wrote down. You become the parent of your parents. Now, when I ended up like, right, you know, the show, that became like a big theme of the show, like becoming a parent of your parents. But anyway, um, initially, I didn't think that, uh, you know, I, I would do a whole show about my dad, but I was also doing this project for the ESB at the time. It was like, a, it was like a, they were using my connection to the immersion to push people to you know, to use less energy. But they were trying to be like, um, they were trying to be eco-friendly by appealing to people's wallets. So rather than saying it's good for the environment, they were basically saying that if you do these things, you'll save money. Uh, And by saving money, you'll be saving the environment. So they were kind of, you know, it was a whole big sort of energy conservation promotion. And the deal for me was that I had to make a few videos uh, with this wonderful guy, Jim, who's just retired, actually, for just uh, just as an aside. He just retired from ESP after like a lifelong career with ESP. He's such a lovely man. And uh, he was just giving me tips about energy saving. Uh, and w- there's a lot of exciting things happening with energy conservation coming down the pipe soon in terms of new technologies that are going to turn your immersion into the cheapest, cheapest item uh, the, the, the least user of, uh, of, of money in your electric. Anyway, I, 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 I digress. So, um, but part of the, part of the deal was that, uh, at the end, I, people entered into this competition and at the end, I did a show for these competition winners, which was in February of 2010. So, in November of 2009, my dad got sick, and I had to come back to Ireland for one week to do some shows. I think I'd shown Belfast in the Waterfront, and then a week, and then a week off, and then I had a charity gig that Ed Byrne had organized in Vicar Street. Um, and I I can't remember which one came first, but I just remember that at both of those shows, I talked about shit that had happened within the first few weeks of my dad being sick, including a a story about Black Bob, the story my dad told about how he once wanked off a dog. Anyway, these stories later become part of the show. My dad was nearly James Bond. So at the ESB gig, that was the first time I said, you know, my dad was nearly James Bond because I had had this idea for years about doing a show. About my dad. But it had nothing to do with him having cancer. But it was all to do with the fact that he had once had an audition for James Bond. I won't bore you with all those details. But needless to say. Suddenly my dad's illness had turned into a show about my father. Appreciation of fatherhood. The heroics of being a dad. As opposed to his regrets about perhaps not being successful as an actor. you know, And the fact that he had... You know, worked a normal job as a manager of Burberry, you know, just like a retail job for us, you know, for his kids. So it was really just, you know, like uh, turning my dad into a hero at the end of his life, you know, when uh, everything is so stark, everything is so immediate, everything is so vivid, you know, this sense of how important is my dad to me, you know. Where is, you know, how much do you love this person? How much have they given to you? How much resentment do you have? How much forgiveness do you have? How much do you need to be forgiven? You know, just all these things, they run around. And we had a year and a half, you know. And in that year and a half, well, it was a special time because... You know, I got my dad to actually come on stage in Edinburgh and then we did a run of shows in New York and my dad came on stage. And um, Just for a little insider knowledge, if anyone ever saw the documentary, my dad was nearly James Bond. You know, it's about, it's about our first night in Edinburgh. Well, it, it climaxes in our first night in Edinburgh, which was a special night, but it looked shit on camera. My performance looked shit on camera. And when we shot it in New York, it looked way better. So when you're watching, my dad was near James Bond. At the end, when I'm performing, I'm actually in New York. My dad's backstage in Edinburgh. My dad is actually backstage, you know, like reacting in real time because it's the real first night. But every time it comes back to me, it's in New York because we had a big screen behind me. It looked way better. And then at the end, when my dad walks out and gets a standing ovation, it's New York. It's not the first night. But it doesn't matter because it was a perfect representation of that first night. Um, except that if you watch it again, I'm mouthing his lines because every night in Edinburgh, he fucked up his lines. So I was like willing him to get it right. But of course, typical control freak. I was literally fucking trying to say it for him like a bad ventriloquist. Uh, and uh, anyway, it was a special time. That time It was great, you know. And it was a great sense of togetherness and performance. And I wrote about it, you know, in the book. And, uh, but, you know, the book ends when my dad's, when my dad dies, you know? And uh, as everyone knows, I think when somebody dies, you know, the, the, there's a weird excitement. You know, it's almost hard to admit, but I've talked to people about it. You kind of like it. You know, the stress and the meeting everybody and the attention and the organization and managing people. There's an energy to it. I'm not saying it's the best energy of all time, but I think most people look back at those couple of days as not the darkest of times, you know? The darkest of times comes later you know in the the silence the the not present when you come home the you know the not able to call when chelsea win uh the time and time again a moment where you might call that person your father your mother your your husband your wife you know um a friend gets married and the father makes a speech and you realize my dad will never make a speech at my wedding i mean i might never make a speech at my wedding because of there's none forthcoming but you get my point you know um your friend is a kid and, you know, he's with the granddad. And you think, oh, my dad, you know, he'll never hold my child, you know. Those are the moments that are tougher, you know. And they they space out, you know. But the reason why I thought about it was, you know, when I got this message on Facebook, and I was like, oh this fucking thing of like the drama of somebody being gone you know and the the sense of like oh you know it's so sad and like i hate when people dismiss emotion i hate when people are just you know belittle somebody being honest about their emotions but i found myself sort of doing it to myself or sort of like uh putting my almost like turning uh my own resistance into just acknowledging the moment into like a resentment for like who the fuck does this person think they are to to think it's okay you know because they're they're a stranger you know like how do they think it's okay to just say this you know and again if this person is listening This is, you haven't done anything wrong. I'm just, this is the, and I I caught myself in that. And I was like, why are you so goddamn resistant to the anniversary, you know? And I wondered about those years and making a documentary. You know, the documentary came out a few days before my dad died. And there was an excitement about it. And then everybody in Ireland knew that my father had died. And then I continued touring the show. And so he wasn't even dead, really. He was on a screen every night, you know, showing him walking out on stage. And uh, the Irish Times came and did a piece about my first show after coming back after my dad died, you know? And it was amazing. And then I remember uh, at Cat Laughs, 2011. My dad died in February 2011. It, the Cat Laughs. I don't know why. I guess maybe, I don't know, was I still joking about my dad? or? I can't remember. The Cat Laughs is the comedy festival in Kilkenny, by the way. It's a June bank holiday weekend. And Nisha Nunn, who actually just sent me a a message today he he it was the Monday night of the cat last, which is uh, the good night cats, you know it's kind of like everyone gets up and does five minutes, it's a pretty wild night. well, it used to be more wild, but it's still pretty wild and I'd had a great weekend, but i was I was running around like a fucking lunatic, you know and uh, I was tired, and uh, Nisha said, I can't remember what he said, I wish I could, but I fucking broke down, I just like collapsed, just like no way could I get on stage, and that hadn't happened, I mean I was on stage within a week of my dad dying, I'm talking about my dad, but then suddenly the humor just left me, you know, and I just, I, I, I cried for ages, you know, and it was so weird because it just. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. for free shipping and 365 day returns. Came out of nowhere, you know, I just didn't see it. And then it was like, bang. And it, I, I, can't, I can't connect with it now, you know, I can't, but I just remember going like, this is crazy. You, you have not stopped from the minute your father died. You've been going and gigging and running and like I've said in previous episodes, you know, I, I always prided myself on being this, like, emotionally aware guy. And really on top of my emotions. But it was, like, often that's just a facade, you know? Um. And uh, so I didn't... Perform that night and I hated the fact that everybody was worried about me oh god I fucking hated it you know you okay like, yeah I'm fucking okay you know I fucking I can hate that sometimes you know you alright you know uh, the vulnerability even though I've heard a million times you know when you're vulnerable you're strong but still hate it and uh, I got through it but And I remember people said, you really need to grieve. And I said that I would, but I I don't know if I ever properly did. You know? Or I guess you just, you just keep going. But, uh, it just popped into my head today when I, or the other day when I got that message. And, you know, when I talk to my mother about my dad, there is something sort of, we got a little bit lucky like with the way that it all happened with this time that we had at the end you know because it did it did really it did really turn his his illness into like this crazy positive experience Uh, i don't know what the better way to deal is it to really like embrace it and like be sad or to just drive on but uh it's definitely not 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 written in stone but you know it's funny. It's just lately these podcasts, lately these episodes, they've been like, you know, more personal. And uh, why I've continued doing them is because actually, they're quite like sharing, like at a, at like an AA meeting, uh, you know. And uh, there's something kind of nice about sort of teasing it out. But in the last episode, or maybe the episode before. You know, I was talking about it's been a while since I did any, like, therapy. And uh, I definitely never really went to anybody about how grieving might have affected my, you know, like how the loss of my father might have affected me, you know. But check this out. Since my dad died, I have been moving the entire time so my dad died in 2011 2012 i made under the influence which was just chaos still a series i'm very proud of but you know very like divisive uh but that was all going around ireland you know and then the whole time that was happening i was preparing to go to china then i went to china for a year and then i stayed another year and then I came back from China and I started slowly moving back to New York. But I've been New York, Australia, Ireland. I've been moving the whole time. And like you don't you don't make a decision to do it. But actually I have not stood still. So I don't think it's a coincidence that one, I haven't like been at, you know, like I haven't like checked my, you know, I haven't like gone and. Been real honest with somebody uh about my my you know my emotional well-being for like a long time all that since my dad died and even though like I wrote you know I wrote the book and that was like you know it's great all that stuff you know people read the book and they're like wow you really have a great on you know it was great your relationship with your dad but like in truth you know part of that is It's not performance per se Because it's honest and it's real But it is You know, it is uh, For public consumption You know, just like this is But, you know, I'm trying to be a little more honest with these You know, because they're not getting edited You know, we book you get a couple of drafts And I mean, I don't get me wrong, I edit the podcast But all I can do when I edit a podcast Is take out a bit Whereas, you know, with the, with the book, you can rewrite it, you know? You can try to make it poetic or, you know, deeper, more meaningful, you know? Uh, so, you know, if, if, if suddenly this, pod, if this, you know, the theme of the podcast is, you know, trying to be more honest, you know, which is the time that we're at in society anyway, then I would say that, yeah, I've been moving, like, all the time. And maybe the fact that I got this apartment, and I'm not saying I'm not going to be back in Ireland, but maybe the fact that I got this apartment and, you know, that maybe I'm going to try to not be moving as much is uh, causing it to stir. Or maybe it was just the anniversary or Ed Torres messaging me or my mother wanting to talk about it me not really wanting to talk about it. That... uh, it hit me that I think I might have ran a little bit from my grief. Whether this helps, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little bit tired now. Like I was quite hyper by the when I grabbed this mic, but you know, it's uh, I'll tell you what time it is right now. It's uh, midnight, uh, Wednesday night into Thursday morning. Uh, and you know, I'm sort of fading fast, so I'm just not, uh, as articulate as I would like to be about it, nor am I sort of awake enough to really be in touch with any emotion or any point that I'm trying to make. But I hope, I hope people can identify to a degree, you know, there's so many different areas of loss, um, Now, I lived a lot of my life away from home, so maybe sometimes I feel like my grief is different because I don't have as many triggers. You know, I did not spend a lot of time with my dad in Ireland, for example. Uh, So there's just not a lot of, like, walking into rooms in my house in Rialto and saying, do you remember dad, you know? So it's more like when I came back here, but we sold the house, so now that's gone too. And that you know that was definitely a trigger, and you know. yeah, that's my little uh, meandering thoughts on grief and uh, grieving. I guess it's good. It's not going to be like this forever. Like I'm not going to fucking talk about every goddamn fucked up thing that goes on in my mind. But um, geez, if we ever get onto me and my relationships, that'll be a fucking. That might be a series. Yeah, we might talk. About, <laughs> we might talk about that one another time. And uh, it's funny because I see Russell Brands on Facebook and he's got some great shit about recovery. And, you know, it's great. And like, but I do sometimes feel like... I love all that. I used to love that. I used to love sharing at fucking AA and NA meetings and being just like so fucking articulate about and just like having my little anecdotes, my little stories and everybody be like, wow, I got so much from what you said. I used to fucking love it. But the truth was that like I was full of shit. Like not, not totally full of shit because I was like, I was working on myself, but full of shit in that like, of that was a performance And I'm not dismissing Russell Brand Because I think people are getting loads out of what he's saying Including myself Like he's very articulate He's really good at putting it out there Simplifying it Making it like um, appetizing for everybody Including people who might not have struggled with alcoholism Or drug addiction Just making it appetizing as like a formula for life Like I love that You know But at the same time I feel like Sometimes it's better to be like honest about your, you know, what, what, what's, what's bugging you rather than all the time being like, this is how I sorted my shit out. This is my shit sorted. Get on the, my shit sorted train and ride along with me, you know? Uh, cause I, I've done way more of that than, uh, being honest. Like even, you know, after I broke up with my ex 2008 bad time, and I went to these uh these kind of like group therapy sessions and uh, they were great you know and it was about relationships you know and uh but I fucking I, I was very quickly like putting out the how great I'm doing vibe you know and I was good at it you know and I had some good Spiel going down about How I was doing But in truth Anytime I wasn't doing great I wouldn't say it Because I didn't want to like I didn't want to bust my image in the group I didn't I wanted everyone to think I was a star pupil Even though it wasn't a fucking class You know you can't save your face and your ass at the same time That's like a cliche from You know my early days of recovery You can't save your face and your ass at the same time But I was Always more worried about my face and my ass you know, it always comes back to bite you because you know what happens. Then when you really fuck up, you're afraid to say it. And then if you don't say anything, it only gets worse. So you're really just fucking yourself, you know? So that's why now I'm going to try to worry about saving my ass more than my face, you know? Because lucky for me, as I've gotten older, my face has gotten better. <laughs> so I don't need to worry about it anymore. I'm only kidding. But uh anyway... uh that's that's my philosophy for the next while. A bit of honesty, and uh, you know, there's all this stuff. Like, look, I'm not I'm not trying to put like recovery shit onto you guys, but when you when you hear a, st- a sentence like the therapeutic the therapeutic value of one addict helping another without parallel, right? That's like that that comes from that comes from the the A A N A world, right? Which I know is anonymous, but I'm just I'm just sharing a bit of wisdom from it, right? So the therapeutic value when I help there's a parallel. But I mean, the the fact is that addiction, alcoholism, is just a label, really. Like we all suffer in our own way. Like I used to feel like there was more uniqueness about me as an addict, quote unquote. But in actual fact, it's just the 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 trials and tribulations of human life. You know, we can all identify with it. So what I like about these last few weeks on the uh, you know on the podcast is that you know, hopefully some people can empathize, some people might sympathize, which is also fine, but there's an energy to that, which I think is positive, you know, and comedy is flippant, and it's dismissive, and I love it, I love my job, I fucking love it, I walked home from the comedy cell to my new apartment tonight, I was fucking floating, floating, cloud nine, I fucking love it, but it's not all of me, you know, and neither is just Talking to fucking strangers is not all of me either. But it is a drive in me to perform, communicate, uh, and um, interact. Uh, So in my public life, uh, there's something intimate about this podcast. There's something intimate about speaking into this mic. So I'd like to use this... uh, I'd like to take this intimacy... And, and, and uh, sort of use it in this way uh, for myself and hopefully for you guys. But it's definitely a two-way street. Um, and I think that's it because I'm waffling like a motherfucker. But I appreciate it. And I've appreciated the feedback in the last couple of weeks. A lot of people engage with me on the anxiety thing. A lot of people uh, engage with me on the consent thing. I do think for my Melbourne show, there's going to be a lot of stuff about consent. I was trying out some material about that tonight. Uh, And yeah, that's it. Continue to leave your wonderful comments. Uh, I love them on Instagram just because I'm an egomaniac and I'm trying to build up my Instagram account. So follow me on Instagram. Des Bishop, at Des Bishop. And... uh, Oh, actually, sorry, before we go, let me uh, share with you one more story. I do remember one spooky, well, I don't like the word spooky because I don't really believe in spookiness, but one interesting story about when I was touring after my dad died but still doing the show about my dad. um, I was gigging in Limerick, uh, probably in the concert hall, can't remember. But uh, I was traveling with two of my buddies, Colin and Bob, uh, they, You know, they came with me for the ride. Well, actually, I think Carl was opening for me. Carl Murray does Late Date now. And uh, he was doing his stand-up comedy phase. And so we decided to stay in Adair. We splashed out and we stayed in Adair Manor, which was pre its reopening as a fancier place, although it was still quite fancy then. Anyway, those that know Adair Manor know that in the evening... Uh, the residence bar is what th- was the TAC bar. I don't know if it still is. I haven't been there since it reopened. But um, after the show, I was tired. I was going out with somebody then, and uh, so I said to the guys, "Like, listen, you guys go to the bar. I'm gonna go upstairs. I'm gonna call my girlfriend, and uh, I'll be down." Right. So, um, so I did. I made the call, but I was tired, you know. And I don't drink, so I was like. I kind of, I fell asleep on the couch in the room and the lads called me and they were like, are you, oh, text me, are you coming down? So I said, all right, I'm coming down, I'm coming down. So I guess about maybe f- 25 minutes, half hour had passed. So when I get down, there's a piano player in the tack bar and he is playing The Old House by John McCormick now the lads wouldn't have known this my buddies but my dad's request for his ashes was that we would go to ballycotton and spread his ashes near the cliff walk which looks out over the lighthouse in ballycotton and you know we the documentary that was on had been on already but he talks very clearly in the documentary about where he wants his ashes spread. Now, I'm so dismissive of my father that I thought that he had like a false memory of this place, you know. But actually, after the documentary went on TV, hundreds of people emailed me or Facebooked me or tweeted me. And they all said the exact same place. It was quite a, quite a distinct place that my father wanted his ashes spread from memories he had of you know being let run free i mean the funny thing is that his grandfather was uh a, a, like a bad boozer and would go to Ballycotton to do whatever business they had to do in Ballycotton because they were like farmers and uh then he would go to the pub and my dad was allowed to just you know roam free in Ballycotton which was a wasn't a problem but anyway he would run up to this hill uh, looking over the lighthouse and run around the field and pick mushrooms and do whatever, you, whatever the hell he wanted to do. And he loved it. Uh, so this is where he wanted his final resting place to be. Some place where he had found peace in his childhood. Which, perhaps for another episode, I'll tell you that my father's childhood was not peaceful. But this was a peaceful memory for him. And uh, so he wanted his ashes spread there. But he said to us, not on the documentary, but to us privately, that he wanted us to sing The Old House by John McCormick as we spread his ashes. And, you know, I really should, um, you know, I think I will while I'm telling you this story because there's a poignancy to it, you know, which is, says a lot about my father and his, his longing for home, uh, because you know he he was like a displaced guy, really, my dad, and he was he had a confused identity um and that that followed him his whole life you know uh, this you know unsure of where he was from and you know who who he was, and his mother was this wonderful woman who unfortunately had a severe mental illness and ended up uh you know ended up sort of being horrific and uh, but yet he longed to be back in Middleton in his mind you know he longed to be back in Cork Um, and so he had this unique request sorry if I sound distracted it's because I'm looking up these lyrics but uh, he had this odd request to have uh, to have us sing The Old House by John McCormick so uh let me see if i can find a good verse of this oh yeah so it says lonely is the house now and lonely the moorland the children are scattered the old folk are gone why stand i here like a ghost in a shadow Tis time I was moving. Tis time I passed on. So, it's a good one to sing where you're spreading somebody's ashes. Especially for a man who wants to be laid in his final resting place in the place where the old folk, well, you know, the children are scattered. He was one of them. And the old folk are gone. They were all dead by then. All his people from Cork. And, uh, Anyway, he definitely had passed on. I, yeah, I thought it was a... It was a poignant... It was a poignant thing to request. You know? And not that odd for our family. It's not like we're afraid to sing a song. So, anyway... It wasn't that long after my dad died that I was in a dare manor. And when I walked into the tack bar, there was this piano player playing the old house. And... uh He had seen me walk in, and when he finished playing the old house, he looked over at me, the piano player, and he said, that's for your dad.